Over the last couple of weeks, we have taken time to consider the gifts that Christ has given to His church through the Reformation, and the gifts that Jesus has given to her proclamation of the gospel through His reformers. This morning, we're going to conclude this series and get ready to jump back into redemptive history next week. Little Christians, as we do, here's my question for you. Does anybody get an easier or a harder time with the gospel? Do you, or your parents, or your friends, or even your pastors, have an easier time? Do they get anything more, anything less in the gospel? Listen carefully this morning and see if you can answer this question for your parents later. This morning we'll be reading in 1 Peter chapter 5. This is the good news and nothing less as Jesus has given it to His church through the Apostle Peter. 1 Peter chapter 5 verses 1 through 11. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him, because He cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Lord Jesus, you are the shepherd who cares for all of us. I ask that you would make us eager and hungry for your words to us. Because we confess that sometimes we are willing to chew on lesser things. But only your words to us are enough to nourish our souls. You and your gospel are full and they never disappoint. So fill us. Fill our ears and our hearts and our mouths with your good news again this morning. We ask all of these things in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Over the last few weeks, you may have noticed Benjamin Fodor in the news. But there's also a, lot of, there's a really good chance that you've missed it. With political engines warming up for 2012, the devaluing of the euro, Occupy Wall Street, and the recent deaths of Steve Jobs and Muammar Gaddafi, hasn't exactly been a slow news cycle. So now that I think about it, I guess there's a really good chance you've missed Ben Fodor in the news. 
But if you've missed it, you're missing one of the most amusing stories the news has to offer right now. You see, Benjamin Fodor is part of Seattle's real-life superheroes movement, which is exactly what it sounds like. They say that they aren't vigilantes. They have a creed that they live by that requires them to uphold justice and abide by the law and promote awareness and inspire change. But when I hear his story, I don't buy any of it. On paper, they sound like your neighborhood association's crime watch. But these aren't a group of middle-aged men in reflective vests. This is a dozen people who wear custom-made rubber suits. Ben Fodor, the group's founder, carries pepper spray and a taser and a cell phone on a belt that he made. He's like an ill-prepared Batman. He prefers to be called by his crime-fighting name, Phoenix Jones. But judges insist that they call him by his legal name. He's a former competitive mixed martial artist, and he's currently on trial for four counts of assault. After he pepper sprayed a crowd involved in a fight that many witnesses say he started. I may be going out on a limb here. I don't know the man personally, but I think his motives are less than pure. These real-life superheroes say that they are driven by a desire to promote and uphold good in the, commi- in the communities where they live. But it seems more like they're just a handful of violence-happy man-children with Napoleon complexes and chips on their shoulder. And as odd as it sounds to us, that's exactly where Peter starts us off in our passage. His appeal in our passage begins with the elders' motives. He's just finished one of several discourses on suffering throughout his letter. Now he turns his attention to the elders and he looks at what induces them and drives men to care for the Lord's sheep. He says it has to be more than chasing a paycheck like some kind of televangelist. It has to be more than just a living power grab with dreams of becoming the church's fuhrer. It's not going to be enough if they pastor out of sheer obligation even. If they act and care for people like their arms are twisted by God and a sense of guilt. He says that they have to shepherd willingly. Not just willingly, but eagerly. And they have to shepherd humbly. In part, to hear this from Peter is fruit of what we saw last week. This is why the Lord wanted His people to lay up and treasure His words in their hearts. Remember last week we said that their identity as His people is established all at once by His saving action for them. But then He grows and nurtures and matures and shapes their identity around the stories of His salvation that He puts in their mouths to rehearse. Peter's identity is no different. It works the same way. In fact, you can hear echoes of Peter's stories in our passage. Here we have Peter calling these elders to live as examples to their flocks so that both the pastors and the people will clothe themselves in humility. Two weeks ago, we read and considered John 13 together. 
the story of Jesus leaving an example for his flock. He did it 30 years before by clothing himself in tangible humility with a towel wrapped around his waist, wiping the filth from his disciples' feet. Peter has built his heart and his life around the unsettling stories of Jesus and his gospel. And now he's not just calling for humility in others. By his grace, Jesus has grown Peter into humility. So what we don't have here is Peter addressing these elders like he's a pope. In fact, we don't even have him appealing to his apostleship. He's not ashamed of it. He doesn't hide it. He introduced himself that way at the beginning of the book. But here, as he winds down the letter, he makes no claim to special authority. He just addresses them like one more presbyter. He doesn't have any privileged position under Christ. He's just one of them. And that's the point. That's the point he's making for them. Jesus has glory in store for his church when he returns. And we're all waiting for it. We're all waiting for Jesus to reveal the same glory in us. Even Peter. He's not the custodian of the Lord's glory. He didn't get to flash his apostle's badge and get an advanced screening of it. He's just one of a number of partakers, and he's waiting with the rest of us. Regardless of who you are in the church, Peter is saying, there are no separate categories. No separate categories of anxiety or temptation or suffering. Nobody makes a tastier meal for Satan. He would be equally pleased to devour any one of the Lord's people if he could just snatch one of them out of Jesus' hand. But Jesus is just as gracious to all of us not to let him do it. We don't get different qualities of grace. And in the end, we aren't exalted to some special position and given different measures of glory. This kind of partaking is Peter's pastoral theology. You want to hear it again in a nutshell? It doesn't matter who you are under Jesus' hand. From beginning to end, we're all in this together. We all need Jesus just as desperately, and we all have just as much of Him in the gospel. No one gets any more or any less. This is one of the treasures that the Reformation recovered for us, for our life as the church, and especially for our preaching. We start getting it in the early Reformers. Much of what they wrote later became the basis for our doctrine of the collective priesthood of all believers. But a few generations later, it's the English Puritans who really narrowed the focus on it. Pastors like John Owen and Richard Baxter. And I realize this is a varied group. Owen and Baxter have their differences. To be sure, all families have their different characters, and our Reformed family is no different. If you brought your girlfriend home from college to meet your Reformed family at Christmas, you would very quickly pull out a chair for her next to John Owen. It's a little serious and quiet, but he's sharp and he's well-mannered, and you know that nothing he says is going to embarrass you. 
All through the meal, you'd be looking over your shoulder, ready to run interference for her with Richard Baxter. He's kind of like your weird uncle. He doesn't quite fit, but he's in the family. No matter what tangents he might chase from time to time, when he starts talking about a theology of the pastorate, a doctrine of what Jesus is giving to his shepherds and to his people through them, then he's right on. In his 1656 work, The Reformed Pastor, Baxter said that one of the greatest dangers for the church was to have pastors who were unregenerate, men who had never been changed and made new by the grace of Jesus. It's the common danger and calamity of the church, he said, to have men become preachers before they are Christians. To be sanctified by a dedication to the altar of God as priests before they are sanctified by hearty dedication to Christ as his disciples. And so to have men fill pulpits who worship an unknown God and who preach an unknown Christ and an unknown spirit who have never met a state of holiness and communion with God. But, he says later, when their hearts are once savingly affected with the doctrine which they study and preach, then they will preach it heartily. He moves on to address pastors and says, Don't content yourselves with the main work of grace, but be also very careful that you preach to yourselves the sermons you study before you ever preach them to others. In the Reformation, Jesus was doing nothing more than reminding his church of what he had preached to them 16 centuries earlier through Peter. That the division between lay people and clergy is only a difference of his calling. It is not a difference of his provision. And it's never been a difference of our need. And this means the world to us as we live under the gospel together now. First and foremost, it means that Rich and Colin and I can't come up here to preach to you any more than we come up here to preach to ourselves. We don't stand in this pulpit to bestow on you some choice insights because we've mastered Scripture. Jesus never intended to have people who had mastered His Word. He has always been mastering His people by His Word. In January, we're going to call for nominations for more elders to help us with the task of shepherding. And when we do, don't look for men who are pining away for some power. Don't look to men who love to hear themselves talk because they think they've mastered the Bible. Start thinking of men who already shepherd with humility because they've been mastered by Jesus and His Word. The men of God's choosing throughout Scripture have been no different. Jesus taught Abraham to trust him while he held a knife over his son. We have the story of Jacob who cheated his way into everything he thought was blessing until he limped away one day with the real thing. David sang to others of the Lord's mercy because it's all he ever had. Peter learned humility and submission as Jesus pulled him back out of all of his arguments and denials. Thomas learned faith by watching Jesus conquer his doubt. 
Paul was a persecutor of the church until Jesus, by His grace, made him a living sacrifice. These men didn't have flattering biographies to authorize because Jesus never inflated their egos or reputations. None of them needed inflating. They needed the salvation of a Savior who became man for them who died in their place and then rose with the promise that He would do the same for them. Jesus is everything they needed. By His grace over time, He taught them that He's all they had. So that means our words. My words to you and your words to each other can't rest on what makes people smile. In our words, we have to hear Jesus smiling on us. We can't preach to each other like our reputations or even our jobs depend on it. We have to preach the gospel to each other like our lives depend on it because they do. Your lives and our lives, everything rides on this one gospel. Not just what we say and how we say it. Not, is it attractive or popular or strategic? Those questions aren't good enough. And the answers to those questions aren't good enough to get you dressed and out the door early on a Sunday morning. But what Savior has gotten a hold of us and refuses to let go? That's good enough. And that's what we all need together. So in your friendships, when you talk to each other, or when you stumble in here for worship, ready to settle for a few jokes and some clever statements that fill time, don't settle. Don't settle in the way that we address you or that you address each other. Don't ever get away or try to get away with offering so little We are all depending on Jesus together, and we have no shepherding of our own to give, only His for us. And here on a Sunday morning, and every day we're apart, Jesus is tending all of us as His sheep. So the words that we preach here, and the words that we preach to each other through the week, have to be His words for all of us. You and I need His strong words the strength of His story told over ours. We need it because He's the shepherd strong enough to carry all of the anxieties that are breaking our backs. All the fear behind every decision we make as parents. All the glaring inadequacies as husbands and wives. The realization that we never care for each other well enough All this is undone in the good news that He is the one who cares for us. All of our blinding pride and all of that exhausting image maintenance, all those things are so hard to give up. But Jesus cares for us. These things are no match for the shelter of His hand when you humble yourself under it. When we're unexpectedly laid off and nobody's hiring, 
when our investors or business partners suddenly call in the debts that we can't cover. Jesus is the shepherd who cares for us, and he still feeds his sheep. When a husband says that he's leaving, and by the way, he never loved you, Jesus still cares for you. Jesus holds out his simple but stronger declaration that he has always loved you, and that his love never ends. It carries you all the way into his glory. And when we watch a friend or our child or even ourselves get so wrapped up and tangled in our sin that we can feel the vibration of Satan's hungry purr and you feel his hot breath on the back of your neck, that's when you resist him. You resist him firm in your faith because Jesus cares for you. You remember that he has to get, a now, get past a now empty cross and an open tomb to get to you. Remind him and remind yourself how merciful Jesus is to you and how merciless he is to anyone who threatens his sheep. Remind yourself and remind him of what Rich said earlier that Jesus hunts our hunters and makes them his trophies. We're all in this together, and Jesus gives all of us his unfailing care as our shepherd. Skeptics, if you're not sure what to make of Jesus or his people, or if you hear all of this and simply think, I'm not convinced... Don't miss what this passage has for you. Christians have given you plenty of reasons not to believe Jesus or his gospel. You've seen some of us do all of the things that Peter said at the very beginning of the passage we should never do. People calling themselves disciples and then using Jesus' name to stockpile money and power for themselves. And even less scandalous, but no less shameful, you've heard some of us preach at you without a drop of humility, telling you all the things that you need and we don't, throwing around our demands and our ultimatums, dress like this and value that and vote like me, climb up here on my soapbox, just follow me and let me remake you in my image. At times we may mistakenly call this gospel preaching, but it's all turned around. If we ever tell you that you need something that we don't, that's not Jesus' shepherding. Jesus calls for humility and suffering in his people because he did it first. Now, by his grace, he gives the same to us. And he offers the same to you. I know that's not a very convincing sales pitch, but it's the truth. You don't need anything different than we do, and Jesus doesn't offer anything else. We don't get to order those pieces a la carte. It's just one package of discipleship. Him giving us and you His humility and His suffering and His unfailing care as the shepherd of all of those who belong to Him through His gift of faith.
earlier when I said that all of us need the gospel equally, shepherds and people alike, I wasn't just throwing that in for effect. If anything, I feel like I need the gospel more and like I'm more prone to forget it than anyone else I know. I'm convinced that Jesus called me to gospel ministry for my sake far more than he did for yours. Here's the irony of how this works. Jesus knows that I need much more than a 30 or 40 minute sermon before he ever gets my attention. So he gives me weeks filled with sermon preparation. And most of the time, it takes most of the week. I was planning to do this sermon all week. With all of its parts, including my need to hear the gospel and to preach it to myself before I ever preach it to you. Ironically, I was ready to tell you that before I believed it. I had been working through this passage this week, and none of it sank in for me until late Thursday night. Kara had a night out planned with some friends, so I was staying home with kids and to work on my sermon. Before she left, I was complaining. I just said, I feel like I'm stuck in one of those periods over the last several months. Being a pastor is so difficult and so annoying. And then for the first hour and a half that I stared at this sermon and this passage, I couldn't get past my own dissatisfaction with my own calling. Those parts about shepherding willingly and eagerly slipped past me all week. Like some badly parodied scene out of Star Wars. These aren't the words you're looking for. It was missing those words. It was missing the gospel, failing to believe it, and failing to see Jesus' goodness to all of us in it. That's where all of my cold annoyance comes from. Teaching a class on community on Wednesday nights. And I've been miserable for the last seven weeks at how little I actually like anybody. I'm supposed to preach good news all the time, but there are days that I can't remember why it's good at all. Pastoral ministry frustrates me because Jesus is constantly using it to expose and frustrate my sin. And up here, Jesus makes sure that I can't forget the gospel because he keeps on putting it in my mouth. And that's actually good news for me and for you. Jesus has us, and he will do whatever it takes, whether it's making us hear or preach the gospel. Jesus has us, and he will do whatever it takes to carry us all the way into his glory. And so to him and him alone, be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Lord Jesus, you satisfy us with your gospel, and often the satisfaction that comes from your gospel is unsettling. You have been kind to all of us. You have not been stingy with any of us. You have held back none of your goodness. Even though our hearts are so slow to recognize it, so slow to enjoy it, you have given us your grace and your goodness. 
It protects us from our hunters and it carries us all the way by faith through life and into your glory. You've put us all together in this. You have been kind to us all together. We ask that you would give us the satisfaction and the joy of seeing your grace and seeing its fruit in us for our good and for our comfort, but for your glory forever and ever. Amen.